Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Steven Pinker. Steven is a linguist, a cognitive scientist, and a professor at the Department of Psychology at Harvard. He's the author of 12 books, including bestsellers, How the Mind Works, which I'm a huge fan of, The Blank State, Not a Blank Slate, another one I love, Alignment Now, and most recently, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, and Why It Matters. Steven, welcome to World of Deaths. Thank you very much. Now, you're a proponent of the computational theory of mind, which kind of treats the mind as an information processing system. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, it's a theory that attempts to explain the fundamental mystery about human intelligence, namely, how can a hunk of matter be smart, be intelligent? Now, one popular hypothesis is that it's infused with an immaterial substance, ghost in the machine, a soul, a spirit. Uh, no evidence for that, among other things, when the physiological activity of the brain stops, as far as we can tell, the person goes out of existence. And there are many other reasons to think that the mind and intelligence inherently depends on the brain. Another possibility is that there is some special chemical, some special substance that confers intelligence on a human brain, maybe some fatty component of a membrane or some hormone. Seems unlikely because no one has explained how an inert chemical can result in all the wondrous things that we call intelligence. So the computational theory of mind offers a third kind of solution, namely that intelligence comes from information processing, that knowledge, perception, ideas consist of patterns in the brain that correlate with things in the world. That is, you open your eyes, you see a dog, there's a pattern of activity in the brain, and it's a different pattern of activity than when you see a cat or a tree or a pencil. That thinking consists of computation, that is, information transformed into other kinds of information by physical processes that just convert one pattern into another. So if you have the thought dog, then you also have the thought, well, it probably barks and it might bite and it lifts its legs at fire hydrants, at least the nail does. All of these other things that you can then predict based on transforming one pattern into another. And I think a third component, this one is less emphasized by the philosophers of cognitive science who articulated the theory, is the theory of control, of feedback, how you can get intelligent behavior. And just as in a chess playing program, a thermostat, cruise control on a car, if you've got feedback, that is, if you want to pet the dog, if you sense that the dog is too far away to pet it, if you know that walking will reduce the distance between you and the dog, and to achieve the goal of petting the dog, one of the things you got to do is walk toward the dog. So you put control information computation together, and at least you have a candidate for how matter can display this miracle called intelligence. And when you look at the brain, it's got a lot of the features that you would expect an information processing device to have, namely its patterns can lead to patterns, it's connected to the world, through sense organs and muscles, and the fact that we can simulate intelligence on other devices that aren't made out of brain tissue, but that do process information, namely our own computers, suggests that the very idea that computation can result in something called intelligence is coherent. And our brain is kind of, in some ways, who we are, right? If you and I somehow can swap brains but keep our bodies, 
your brain is in my body, my brain's in your body, it wouldn't be the outside, it'd be more the inside of who we are, right? Yes, no one's done the experiment, but yes, that's the expectation. As it's sometimes said, this is the one kind of transplant where you really want to be the donor, not the recipient. That is a brain transplant. Exactly right. Now, there's so much going on in AI right now with large language models and neural nets and stuff like that. Where's the analogy to the brain and where do you think it breaks down? Yeah, so they're called artificial neural networks based on the metaphor of neural networks in the brain. That is many, many, many simple computing elements that basically aggregate a bunch of incoming noisy signals, compare it against a threshold, and then either send on a signal or not, or send a graded signal. You wire up lots of them. In the case of the human brain, there are 86 billion. In the case of some of these large language models, it's on the order of a trillion or more connections, that is. And they learn from experience, as do we, in the sense that the connection strengths between these simple computational elements, that is the probability that the output will fire given the input, can change as a result of being exposed to correct information, that is either by a teacher in what's called supervised learning, or just by statistical regularities in the input in the case of unsupervised learning. So there's the analogy. And clearly, the brain is a massively parallel network of simple units. On the other hand, there's also some pretty striking differences between large language models, artificial neural networks in general, and real neural networks. That is the kind that we have. One of them is that we don't need a petabyte of data as children with their child I mean, that would take literally hundreds of thousands of years of learning, and kids are speaking pretty fluently by the age of three. And also, as best we can tell, and this is a controversy that I've taken aside in, human cognition doesn't just aggregate statistical patterns, but we also have symbols for ideas, for things, for people, for events, for places, for paths. The fact that as impressive as the large language models are, that they are prone to hallucinate, to mash things up, to give a plausible sounding thing which doesn't actually exist in the world, suggests that the fact that they don't have symbols for things like people, places, articles, books, events, places, is a real handicap in these systems compared to what the human brain can do. And the human brain is also fairly low power, right? Compared to like a machine or Yes, that is true. The energy consumption required to train a large language model is gargantuan compared to what we can get out of a cheeseburger. Yeah, exactly. What has surprised you, or has this AI breakthrough in language surprised you at all? Because to me, it's been incredibly surprising. It has been surprising. And I have to admit that part of it is that I'm on record in suggesting that this is not the way that the human brain achieves intelligence. In particular, what these models can do, which surprised a number of us is achieve real or at least a good simulacrum of compositionality. That is combining things in a way that the combination is not the same as just throwing all the parts in a bag, but it is predictable given the configuration of the words. So there's a difference between a dog biting a man and a man biting a dog. That's the difference between news and not news. And you'd think that just a bag of words without any syntactic rules, like the subject of the sentence is the doer of the action would have a lot of trouble, especially when you embed sentences inside sentences inside sentences, and especially when it comes to things more complicated than biting, when it comes to something like the style of Winston Churchill or a romantic comedy type plot, and arranging all of the components that actually satisfies that description is something that you would think would require a lot of computation, 
of symbol crunching. And these models simulate it without that. Now, that is surprising. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised that we're so surprised, given that there's no way that our intuitions can keep up with the statistical patterns that are in a petabyte of data captured by a trillion parameters. There's a lot in there that just in the massively high order statistics, the patterns of patterns of patterns of patterns of patterns, I guess we don't have any right to predict what they're capable of. As a cognitive scientist, I have the challenge of saying, well, how do we know that that's not just what the brain does? And I think it's too late to say I doubt it simply because of the combination of the sheer problem of how much data you've got to train these things on compared to what a human child gets and the flavor of the errors, the bizarre hallucinations, confabulations that humans don't do. Together with the things that they're amazingly good at doing, write a limerick with a light bulb joke about George W. Bush. And I couldn't do that, but these systems can do it. So they're both smarter than humans in some ways, dumber than humans in other ways, probably different. Another thing that at least my intuition was completely off is the generative AI basically creating photos and videos and arts and all this other stuff, the rapid pace of that. If you asked me five years ago, to me, this would be the least likely thing I would expect AI to do right away, but it has done a really good job. Yeah, indeed. Draw a Barcalanger made out of avocado flesh, for example. It's not just a chair next to an avocado, but a texture of the avocado is actually in the shape of the chair. So again, that's compositionality. It's combining ideas in a way that is not just putting them side by side. And it's one of the classic arguments for why human cognition should consist of manipulation of symbols. There's a difference between a chair in the shape of an avocado and an avocado in the shape of a chair. You wouldn't think that just training a system on lots of captioned pictures would allow it to pick out those relationships. But it can, in part because it's been designed with a specific architecture. Namely, it does not map directly from words to pictures, but it has a representation that is neat, that's independent of the senses. It's neither language nor is it pixels. It's abstract ideas. And the fact that DALI and similar systems were innately designed to have that middle level of representation, I think is significant. And it does vindicate one of the key ideas in cognitive science, namely that we have abstract mental representations that are not the same as what comes in on the sense organs. I remember five years ago playing around with this word to vec stuff, king minus queen, and the answer would be prince or something, just like kind of completely blew my mind. And today, that just seems so primitive, even just a few years later. Like, we are moving at a very interesting pace, and at a pace that's very hard to predict where we're going to be a year or two from now. As with the large language models, the generative graphic models do make some rather bizarre mistakes. Like, show me a chimpanzee writing a column, and you've got a chimpanzee with a laptop sitting on a Corinthian column. It didn't get the idea that the column here, first of all, is only the metaphorical column. And if something is mentioned in a sentence, it has just one role. You don't just throw in a bunch of column thoughts and mash them together. That's something that neural networks, without being structured into symbol processing systems, are prone to do. This is something that Gary Marcus and Alan Prince and, and my other collaborators and I pointed out back in the 80s when we first criticized these models as they were proposed as theories of human cognition. 
just an example we point out in the 80s and it's the same as the chimpanzee writing a column on top of a column if you give it the sentence a bat broke a window now what we think of as someone threw a baseball bat and it shattered a window but what the neural network model comes up with as an interpretation is a little bat flapping around with wings has a little baseball bat in its hands and it breaks the window. Not getting the idea that the whole point of syntax, of language, is that the concepts represented by words are given a role in the sentence. The doer, they're the done to, they're the path, they're the instrument. It's not just a pile of different things that they could be doing. But it does seem like those things are things that one can correct for relatively quickly. And we should expect that the bat broke a window thing should be corrected relatively soon, no? Perhaps. And the question is, will it just expose other vulnerabilities? So we don't know. You might be right. When it comes to artificial intelligence and natural intelligence, there are really two kinds of questions. One of them is, how do we get the smartest possible artificial system? And the other is, is this a way of understanding what the human brain is doing. I'm naturally more interested in the latter just because that's what I do. Now, you've argued that a lot of fears around AI safety, whether it's Eliezer Yukowski or other types of fears, are a bit overblown. Like, why do you think that? Well, it's not AI safety. It's rather the idea that AI is an existential threat. So I think, you know, AI could do a lot of mischief. What the internet, but hard to detect fakes for example. But I think the imaginative scenario in which an artificial intelligence turns us into raw materials for some task that it's given, make paper clips and it uses us as a raw material, that I think is nonsense. And why do you think that? Well, a number of reasons. One of them is that's not intelligence. That's stupidity. We're not even talking about artificial intelligence. Intelligence consists of satisfying multiple goals. A system that satisfies one goal, regardless of all the side effects, is not an intelligent system. It's a weapon. And if we want a solution to the problem of how do we not get cannibalized by systems like that, it's don't build it. Don't build a system so stupid that it would pursue one goal at the expense of everything else. That's number one. Number two, don't empower it. Don't plug it into the grid. Don't give it an army of robots. And number three, if you yourself are an engineer, you should be not so stupid as to think that intelligence consists of pursuing one goal at all costs and empowering it to do so. But you don't think the unintended consequence could be just the system doesn't want to be shut off and so it figures out some ways not to be shut off and that could have some bad effects for humankind or something. Don't build a system that does that. That would be the stupidest possible system to build. So yes, don't build a system. But I mean, we have hundreds of thousands of humans building systems right now. You could imagine that not all of them are going to think about all these safety things and some of them will have different goals and some of them will have different time horizons. Some of them just care about the next few months rather than the next millennium. So yes, we can't necessarily rely on every person being a forward-thinking person, right? No, but if someone started to build a killer robot, just as if someone built a car with a machine gun turret that sprayed bullets at 360 degrees, then we'd arrest them for the damage they did fast. So we're not talking about one rogue. If we're talking about one rogue, then yeah, there could be a danger, but there's an awful lot of people who want to prevent that from happening. I think there's a mistake in assuming, in anthropomorphizing different kinds of intelligence and assume that if something is well-designed to solve problems, it will also be interested in self-preservation. Now, those things come bundled together in us because we're products of natural selection. That's how we were built. But anything that we design will carry out whatever goals it's programmed to carry out. And there's no inherent reason why being utterly unstoppable, preventing any 
external control should be built into a system. That's an idiotic thing to build into a system. It's the kind of thing that natural selection might build into us. But just because a system is really smart, I don't see chat GPT trying to take over the electrical grid and nuclear missile systems. And even if it tried, there's an awful lot of infrastructure to prevent it from doing so. Now, how do you think of, if we just think of our own cognitive abilities, when we think of all this new technology, whether it be social media, the internet, et cetera, do you think it's having a very positive effect on our cognitive abilities, a negative effect, no effect? Well, it's having some of each, certainly all forms of computation, including all the kinds of artificial intelligence that we've been taking for granted for decades. We tend not to call it artificial intelligence once it works very well and it's embedded in our systems. But so just to give you an example, when I started teaching intro psych and I wanted to impress students on what an amazing thing the human mind is, I said, no AI system can recognize printed text as well as a human. And I showed them why, they're different type fonts, and sometimes they're blurry and so on. Well, I had to get rid of that part of the lecture because buy a $100 printer scanner from Amazon and it can convert printed text into ASCII characters, no problem. And likewise, a lot of things that we are going to take for granted are already AI in our lives now like Siri and so on. And there's no question that just as calculators made people better overall at computers at using math and retrieving information from data sets and navigating our way across a city, there's lots of scope for the human brain to be much, much better if it's augmented by these assistants that can do things that are smarter than we are in certain respects. But there's always a danger that if you make something too easy, then people will not do the due diligence of discriminating bad advice from good advice, that there'll be ways in which it can be put to use to empower malevolent actors, such as in generating fake news and disseminating fake news, that there's certain features of the incentive structure of social media that bring out the worst in human discourse instead of the best, such as the easy ability to leave a snarky comment or to own someone as a bigot with no consequences for yourself. So any system is going to have a lot of causal effects, and it would be a miracle if all of them were good. That just never happens, and it's just a question of monitoring the good effects and bad effects and then instituting workarounds to minimize the bad effects. Now, this is a data podcast. Are there certain like data sets that you wish you could have access to that would really, you think, help move the science, help move humanity? Yeah, I think the more data, the better, and the, the higher quality data, the better. That is, I've often said that people should spend less time reading the New York Times and more time reading ourworldanddata.com because journalism is a systematically misleading picture of the world because it's a non-random sample of the goriest, flashiest, loudest. It's the man bites dog. Yeah, it's man bites dog. And it's even dog bites man as opposed to the huge number of dogs that never bite anyone. In fact, even if we had nothing but stories of dogs biting men, that would be bad because then you think that every dog is a man. And that is true of violence where certain categories of violence like school shootings or terrorism have a pretty small death toll compared to many other ways in which you can get killed, including violent ways you can get killed, like an argument over a parking spot. And police shootings, hate crimes, compared to just police blotter homicides, domestic violence, which kind of trickle in constantly, but never make the news, we're misled about what is safe and what is dangerous. Likewise, when it comes to, say, climate change, we don't have a 
running meter in the newspapers of CO2 emissions and of which countries do better, do worse. How does it change when a country introduces or changes a policy? And so the trends that actually shape the world are missing from most people's largest source of information, namely the news. There is something in human nature to catastrophize, to kind of think the world is ending. This has been throughout history and throughout time. Humans have gravitated to many of these stories. What do you think is so innate in us that we really gravitate to those stories so much? One is that there's an asymmetry in how things can affect you, owing to the fact that we're extraordinarily complex, improbable systems, and it doesn't take much to make our whole system shut down a poison, rock to the head. So there are lots and lots and lots of things that can go wrong. There are very, very few things that can go right in comparison. I mean, if you think about what are all the terrible things that could happen to you tonight before you go to bed, it's a pretty long list. What are all the wonderful things that could happen to you before you go to bed? It's hard to think of a whole lot of them. Because the nature of existence, the tragedy of human existence is one part of the answer. So we're naturally more vigilant against things that could harm. There are more of them and they can do us more harm. But also, we did not evolve in a world in which things progressively improved. That is, the whole idea of science-driven progress, of enlightenment-driven progress, that's recent in human history. And the very idea that we can collectively put our heads together and conquer disease, conquer hunger, maybe even conquer war, it's not an idea that ever had any validity. Now it has some, but it's not intuitive. In your book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, you kind of put forward like a theory of declining violence in the world and where we've been on a general positive trajectory over the last few hundred years with some blips along the way. But the counter argument is people say, okay, these things are simmering and maybe there's some analogy of being the turkey in October, not knowing it's going to be Thanksgiving in a few weeks. What do you say to those critics? It is certainly true that a decline in violence doesn't mean a disappearance of violence. It is also true that there could be nasty surprises. There often have been. None of the curves of violence or of human progress in general are monotonic. There's no straight line. They're never a straight line. They're not even a smooth curve. They've got jags and spikes. And no, we don't know that something even worse is going to happen in the future. But the thing about the turkey before Thanksgiving is, is absolutely the wrong way to think about it. A catastrophe is not something that is inevitably going to happen, that we'll wait long enough. We have agency, essentially. Well, we have agency. Also, the world is probabilistic. There is no executioner that is looking at his watch waiting to blow up the world. If you want to think about it intelligently, you've got to think about the fact that catastrophes like wars are random in time, what are called a poisson process. That is, every moment of time, there's a certain probability that they occur with very little memory. That is, it's not the case that the longer you wait, the more likely a war is to happen, best we can tell from the statistical distribution of wars. So it's not that the world builds up a lot of tension that then has to be discharged, and the longer the period of peace, the higher the probability of war. It doesn't work that way. Maybe true with like recessions and stuff like that. At some point, you start to see these recessions in the economy, right? Well, actually, that's not so clear. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I suspect economists would disagree with that, that they can occur that this so-called business cycle may not really be a cycle, but it might just be bad stuff can happen at random times. And if you go for a long period of time without one, it doesn't mean that it's like an earthquake, that the tension is building up and it's going to release. My understanding is that's not a good model of the economy or of wars, but rather it's a game of roulette. Maybe it's a game of Russian roulette. 
That is, you're taking a chance at every moment of time. It does not mean, oh, this is terrible. We've had so much peace. We've had so much prosperity. The big one is bound to happen. That's not the way it works. The way it does work, as best we can tell, is that it is like Russian roulette, but we can try to have many, many, many more cylinders in the pistol. And maybe we can have blanks instead of real bullets. Or we can change, even with a random process over time, a Poisson process, it can be non-stationary in the sense that the probability can, in principle, change over time. That's what we ought to be aiming to do, namely make it less and less likely that a big war breaks out. And if one does break out, to see to it that the damage is as low as possible. So both the timing and the magnitude. Yep. One of the things that you've been a big proponent of is kind of this idea of rationality. How do you advise people to have a more rational approach to things like risk? Partly it's to be aware that our system for assessing risk that is wired into us is not the best that we can do. We evolved in a world that did not have data or statistics or record-keeping agencies or a causal understanding of the world. The best that we could do is hearsay, stories from other people of what can go wrong, and our own experience, seeing things that can go wrong and getting a sense of how often they occur as a proportion of the amount of time that's passed. That's better than nothing, but it's worse, at least for rare disastrous events like car crashes and plane crashes and falling off ladders, drowning. They're rare enough that our own experience is going to be a poor guide. And we're fortunate enough to live in a world that has gathered data and we're better off knowing how the data work. So be aware of the availability bias. That is something that pops into mind is going to be perceived as more likely. You read about a shark attack and so you don't go into the water, but you don't pay attention to the risk of driving down the highway to get to the beach where you're much more likely to be killed, but those car accidents don't attract as much attention. We should all be aware of biases like the my side bias. That is, if some belief is a... To your tribe or against your tribe. Exactly. That is, if something is a sacred value of your political party, your religion, your social class, you're likely to believe it with very little evidence, even with contrary evidence. You're likely to look for evidence that confirms your beliefs and not disconfirms them. So the number of biases that one should be aware of, I think it would be good if in our general discourse in journalism, in education, we had a scale to calibrate relative danger. Someone suggested micromorts, that is one in a million probability of dying in a year, just so we know how much more dangerous or safer something like nuclear power is compared to coal-fired plants or driving compared to flying compared to biking. Those are a couple of ways of being more risk-savvy. I consider myself a fairly data-oriented person, but if I'm in an airplane and there's some turbulence or something, I get a little restless. And even though I know intellectually that the plane is unlikely to go, but you start to color it with your own fears, your personal experiences. I do know one person who was in a passenger airplane that crashed. Um, luckily, he survived. But you start to color it with all these other kind of experiences. Is there any simple way of getting out of that? Or is that just what it is to be human? It is what it is to be human, I think. But that having been said, we do have these big frontal lobes that can, can't turn off our emotions. That is, if I was dangling from a safety harness 50 stories above the ground, and I knew that the table was perfectly sound and that the harness was perfectly sound, you know, I'd still be terrified. That you got to accept. On the other hand, you do in making decisions, especially proactively, should I fly or should I drive, where 
you're not in the throes of the momentary passion. That makes it easier. And even when the time comes, there is a lot of wisdom to be had in considering the reality and not surrendering to the emotion. Yeah. It's kind of one of those things where if there was someone next to me freaking out, I could probably calmly tell them that there's nothing happened, but inside I would be freaking out too. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Now you've also been a vocal critic of the decline of intellectual diversity in universities and academic freedom. You recently created this council on academic freedom at Harvard to address this. Can you explain why this movement is coming out of academia? Two reasons. One of them is that academia ought to be the institution in which ideas can be freely exchanged. That's what academia is for. You have this veritas, which is almost in every university. Well, especially my employer, Harvard, is emblazoned on our branding everywhere, veritas. Because we are subject to cognitive biases, we think we're infallible, but we're not. We think we're omniscient, but we're not. That's why we set up institutions like scientific societies and a free press and academia, where ideas can be expressed and then evaluated because no one a priori knows what the truth is. So if we want veritas, we've got to be able to get the ideas out there and go after them. If people in power get to criminalize opinion, get to say, well, if you express that opinion, we're not going to let anyone else hear it or we're going to punish you, you're disabling the only mechanism our species has for approaching the truth, namely conjecture and refutation putting an idea out there, seeing if it survives. So academia, ironically, should be the place that is just built on intellectual freedom. Though it seems that academia is the place that's like most under threat. Why is that? If you had asked me at some point in the past, I would have said, yeah, maybe academia is one of the ones that's susceptible to this, but there'll be other institutions that are more likely to be under threat before academia. Yeah, it is a pathology that somehow got built into the modern university. Not exactly clear why, probably several things, but I have found that many academics seem to think that their mission is not to be part of a collective effort to approach the truth, but rather to advance the right moral values, to achieve social justice. Now, I think just because we have a PhD, that doesn't really equip us to be moral beacons to the world. That's not what I was trained to do. It's not what our institutions are set up to do. But I think many academics have that conceit. And from there, it's easy to use differences of opinion, given human nature that we always think that we're virtuous, as a kind of bludgeon to denigrate social and class cultural rivals. Probably there are features of human nature that just make it natural to assume that we're right and that our enemies are wrong. And that unless you explicitly build safeguards in to prevent that from happening, people in power will exercise it just as religious authorities and political authorities have since time immemorial, you give people some power, you don't curb that power with open debate, open criticism, protection of critics, and it will, I think, naturally regress to a system of intellectual repression. There are some facts that one somehow can get imparted through a lecture, especially in science. These are like real facts. This is how certain elements bond with one another. This is certain mathematical formula. There are certain facts. In some ways, those are easier to teach because you can impart them and someone can learn them. And then there are facts that are very hard to disprove. And then there are other things that are more ideas where you can have lots of very, very smart people who disagree. And in those cases, you really want to give people samplings 
of the different things so they can come up with their own internal truth of it. But it seems to me like the people who teach the ideas kind of also think of themselves sometimes as the people who also are the ones who teach the real facts. Yes. Now, there's definitely a tendency toward overconfidence in one's beliefs, and a kind of moralistic bias to think that oneself is a noble and honest, and people who disagree are fools and are deceptive and dishonest and malevolent. And we got to remember, though, that what we now recognize as pretty well-established facts, in their day, they were pretty controversial, as Galileo and Lysenko and Scopes would attest. And that's why it's essential not to give a pass to less established ideas and say, well, there, it's really dangerous if you believe the wrong one. And it's any idea on its way to becoming established had to be debated in its own time. And squashing the debate had bad consequences, as in the uh, failure of Soviet agriculture under the influence of Lysenko, who denied Darwinian evolution. Now, there are some tropes in universities, sometimes when people use the word science in quotes, that it often means opinion. So if you have political science or if you have social science or something like that, and if it, it actually is science, it's just called math or chemistry and usually doesn't have the word science next to it. And people often use the word science to put some sort of imprint on something that they want to do. Do you think the word science is being disused? Well, that has sometimes been said about my own field of cognitive science. And of course, we've got Christian science, which is kind of a, maybe a, a warning to us all that just calling something science doesn't make it science. The term social science has been with us for, I don't know, 150 years? Or how long has it been around? Was it Auguste Comte? I forget who. I have no idea. That's very interesting. Yeah. But it, it's in political science, and it is at least an aspiration. And I don't think anyone is in real danger of thinking that political science is a science in the way that, that physics is. But we also have to remember that physics, when it comes to certain parts of physics, the debates, the controversies, the intrusion of personal conviction and personal opinion is as bad as Freudian psychoanalysis. When you ask physicists about string theory, tempers can run high. How do you think about writing for general consumption? I remember 20 years ago or so reading How the Mind Works. And I just love that book. It really took me to a new place. And it was very accessible, even for somebody like me that doesn't have the deep research in this place. It was a relatively easy book for somebody like me to comprehend. It wasn't like a total slog. And that's part of the reason I liked it so much and part of the reason I appreciated it. I assume there's this very deep literature that somebody with a PhD might appreciate more or something. How do you think about how should these writers write more for the general audience? Yeah, so I think we do have an obligation to give our science away. That is, taxpayers pay for it. They should get it back in the form of understanding of discoveries and new ideas. Not everyone. We all specialize and allocate our time to different ways. I've devoted a big chunk of my time to making ideas accessible. For me, I find that trying to make ideas from my field accessible to smart people in other walks of life. And that, by the way, is what I consider my audience. And it was advice I got from an editor when I started out. And she said, when academics try to write for a wide audience, they often have it totally wrong. They think they're writing for children, for truck drivers, for chicken pluckers, and they talk down. So that's the wrong way to think about it. The way you think about it is you're writing for someone who's as smart as you are, but just happened to go into a different line of work. Your college roommate who went to med school or became a lawyer or an engineer. 
don't condescend, but don't assume that they have lived the life that you've lived. And I've written about this. I wrote a writing style manual based on cognitive science called the sense of style, which I identified what I thought was the main impediment to clear writing. And it isn't, as most people think, a desire to use highfalutin jargon to try to impress or bamboozle to show off how smart you are. I don't think the motives are as nefarious as that. I think it's just what economists call the curse of knowledge. Namely, when you know something, it's very hard to imagine what it's like not to know it. It becomes second nature. What is a everyday term to you is technical jargon, and you forget that you had to learn it way back in grad school or from some technical article, and that a person, even a brilliant person, just has no way of knowing what that jargon means. Or you describe an experiment, a concept, without spelling out concretely what actually happened. What are the person in the experiment actually see physically. And in describing things in abstractions and in technical terms, you can leave out readers who are perfectly capable of understanding it. If you just did the work of remembering, you had to learn it when you started out, and so do other people who didn't follow in your footsteps. Yeah. In some ways, the jargon is almost a way of excluding folks from not being in the club because there are certain acronyms or certain other types of things that are nice because they're shortcuts to get out the idea. If you say a sharp ratio to an investor, they may have a very good understanding of what that is, but there might be a very, very smart person who could understand it very, very, very quickly. It's not like that complicated of a thing, but they use the shortcut instead of two more sentences to help that person along. And it's a bad trade-off. That is you, the writer, are saving yourself 10 keystrokes, and you are baffling hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of readers in order that you save four seconds in in typing out an abbreviation. I have some criticisms of the Strunk and White's classic handbook, The Elements of Style, but one thing they point out that I quoted is, new babies are being born all the time, and they don't come into the world knowing what price to income ratio means. Everyone has to learn at some point. Now, a couple of personal questions. You grew up in Montreal, which is certainly one of the more bilingual places. Did that influence your trajectory into linguistics? You know, I have to confess, I wish I could say that because it's a really good story. The problem is it's not true because when I grew up, Montreal was not particularly bilingual. It was all French. Well, it was segregated. There was an English minority. There was a French majority. And a famous book about the situation in Quebec at the time was called Two Solitudes. One of the innovations, at least symbolic, of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, father of the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, was he wanted to make bilingualism a reality, at least in the government. You wouldn't think that would be a radical idea, but there really was an awful lot of segregation. And I regret the fact that I'm rather clumsy at French, despite growing up in Quebec. It's rather an embarrassment. Interesting. With these large language models, in some ways, You could see a scenario where translation is easier in the future and the practicality, the need for learning other languages might go down, though there still might be some beauty in learning it and just like learning how to play the guitar, learning how to ride a horse or something like that. There's a lot of beauty in it, but it might not be as necessary as it was in the past. How do you think the acquisition of new languages will change in the future? No, it's a really interesting question, and we're already partly there. We all use Google Translate. We all have the little button on the top of the web browser, and it's been a huge boon. The translations are not always accurate enough, especially if you have some sort of technical need. But certainly with a menu, just the ability for me to order in Spanish today is much easier than it was in the past. It's fantastic, yes. 
So yeah, I think it'll be a good thing. What it will do to the need to study a foreign language in a university is an interesting question. On the one hand, it seems rather philistine to say, oh, you don't have to learn French or Spanish anymore. We not get to that point, especially when it comes to just ordinary conversation. Even there, there are apps that are getting better at translating speech in real time. But as with all technological improvements, if you can identify some good that it delivers and the good outweighs the harm, then it feels uncomfortable, but we'll probably all get used to it. Now, do you consider yourself more of an insider or an outsider? In some ways, you're a professor at Harvard. That's a very stereotypical insider, but you're kind of an iconoclast as well. How do you think of yourself? I try to use my insider privileges, having tenure at a fancy schmancy name brand university, to promote the kind of outsider view that I can get away with. Now, I'm not invulnerable. Tenured professors get fired, and that's part of the problem. And I don't just spout out everything that comes crosses my mind. Right. That's crazy. Nobody does that. No one actually says the truth all the time. They don't. In fact, my next book is going to be about that, why we deplore hypocrisy and genteel euphemism and innuendo, but can't live without it. Oh, interesting. Tell us more, because I find that very fascinating. So like a lot of my books, it grows out of a few observations that I were buried in an earlier book. And I had a book called The Stuff of Thought, Language as a Window into Human Nature. And one of the chapters was on a phenomenon that linguists have known for decades, but never really explained, which is a lot of the time, maybe most of the time, we don't actually say what we mean. We don't just blurt out the truth. We use politeness and euphemism. If you could pass the salt, that would be awesome. If you could pass the salt, that would be awesome. What did <laughs> said? Well, why do we say something like that? Absurd. But everyone knows what it means. Totally, yeah, yeah. They just say, you know, give me the salt, you know, to see the food. It's you know, imperious. There's a lot of that in bribes, in sexual come-ons, in compliments, in criticism. Why don't we just say what we mean? We all think that we want people to say what we mean, but if they did, we would be horribly offended. And I think the difference is, I'll be brief, but what the book is really about is the concept of common knowledge in the logician's sense of everyone knowing that everyone knows something, which is different from merely everyone knowing something. If you and I know something, that's not the same as if I know that you know it, and I know that you know that I know it, and you know that I know that you know that I know that you know. Those are very different, it turns out. In particular, that common knowledge allows for coordination. It allows us to do something that benefits both of us, even if it's arbitrary, as long as we're on the same page. Using paper currency, driving on light. Common customs. Customs, being friends, being lovers, being a boss and a subordinate, being business transactional partners. All of these depend on common knowledge. Sometimes we don't want to change a relationship, flip from one kind of relationship to another. And so we actually try to avoid common knowledge if there's a couple of people who may have a sexual interest, but neither one is sure that the other one does, if you just blurt out, would you like to have sex with me? Well, then it's out there and you have a relationship as platonic friends ever again, or as supervisor and supervisee ever again. On the other hand, you want to go out sometime, become up to see the view from my apartment. There, even if both sides know what offer has been tendered. Ah, there's a common deniability. In particular, there's a deniability of the common knowledge. That is, even if you're not naive, you really know what come up for coffee means, but you don't know that the other person knows that you're not naive. And with each iteration, in the, I think that she thinks that I think that she thinks, there's more and more uncertainty. So that it means that you don't have to acknowledge that 
you're no longer just friends, that there's that sexuality is on the table. You can go back to your relationship if the offer is turned down. There's a lot of that, not just in our everyday emotional lives, but on the world stage. Is Taiwan a sovereign state? Of course it's a sovereign state, but the official policy of our government is that it isn't, and of the United Nations. Does Israel have nuclear weapons? Well, of course they have nuclear weapons. Why don't they just say so? Well, there's a difference between having nuclear weapons and saying you have nuclear weapons and having nuclear weapons and not saying you have nuclear weapons. So it plays out in all kinds of fields. It plays out in speculative bubbles. Why do you buy crypto? Well, because everyone else thinks that everyone else is buying crypto. Why do you sell crypto? Well, everyone's selling it and I don't want to be, they're rushing for the exits. I don't want to be left holding the bag. So a lot depends on your thoughts about other people's thoughts about other people's thoughts. There's this book that Sam Harris wrote like 15 years ago, a short book called On Lying. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it basically takes the argument that one should never lie at all. I remember reading and being like, oh, this is great. I'm going to try it. I started to realize, wow, I lie a lot about the most random things. Again, it would be awesome if you pass the salt. It's kind of a lie. It's really not that awesome if you pass the salt. There are estimates of how often people lie. I think it's at least two lies a day for a typical person. Yeah. I mean, probably if you're talking to a lot of people, I would imagine it's way, way, way higher. It kind of depends on how you define what a lie is, but I imagine it's much, much, much higher. The problem after reading that book is I actually started noticing the lies and it would just be like so frequent that I would say these things like, why do that doesn't make any sense that I said this thing. And then frankly, at some point I felt like I had to forget it because it just wasn't human to always tell the truth. No. And there are some comedies, film called Lying Maya. That, uh, <laughs> but indeed, and I think there's a reason for it, and that is that when you say something, you're actually doing two things. You're conveying information. You're also kind of renegotiating your relationship. And sometimes those work across purposes. We don't want to renegotiate a relationship. Yeah, I remember I was with one of my kids when they were about three in an elevator with a very large, overweight man. And my three-year-old asked him just in the elevator, hey, why are you so fat? And it was literally one of the most awkward where I couldn't leave the elevator. And he didn't know any better. He was only three years old. But that's what three-year-olds do, not 30-year-olds. Exactly. That is childhood innocence. It makes children endearing. But the interesting thing is he wasn't saying anything that everyone didn't already know. I mean, we knew that he was fat too. Yes. And he probably did as well. Yes. And the fat man knew he was fat as well, but it does change it when you blurt it out. It really does. And I think it's because it creates common knowledge. That is, you can't deny that the other person knows that you know that they know that you know it. Interesting. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? Well, I guess trust your gut. Yeah, I think that's true. You think trust your gut is bad in general? I think that's bad advice, yeah. Why do you think so? Because we're full of self-serving biases and fallacies, and our gut delivers advice that probably, on the whole, was a good way to propagate your genes in the past, at least for your ancestors to do it, but that doesn't necessarily bring about the greatest happiness and well-being in the present. I have found that, at least when I've evaluated my own quote-unquote gut, that it seems to work well when it tells me not to do something, but it doesn't work well when it tells me to do something. So if it says, don't hire this person, I feel like I should listen to it. But if it says, hire this person right now, don't invest in this company, seems like it works pretty well. Or if it says, invest in this company, it seems less good to work. Do you have any theory as that is reasonable or not? 
Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I would not be surprised if that was true, if it is true. The problem is we never know that it's true because we remember the success. I don't want to like write it all down. Yeah. Let's imagine if someone did, let's say if someone kept track of all of those decisions and then tallied up the ones that were misses versus false alarms. If it was true, I can imagine one possibility is that there are a lot of the ways that things can go wrong. And therefore, it takes less to be able to pick up one of them. To pattern match those. Yeah, exactly. Like the tiger hiding in the bushes or something or whatever. Yeah, whereas it's much less probable that there would be the magic combination of features that make something succeed. And so there, it would depend, and this is all hypothetical, it would depend much more on aggregating lots of probabilistic cues as opposed to one deal killer or blackball or veto that the aggregating lots of cues is something that the human mind is not very good at doing. I mean, the way that Paul Mayle, a famous psychologist, put it is, in terms of the limitations of human decision-making, if you're in the supermarket checkout line, you wouldn't throw all your groceries on the belt and sell the cashier. Looks to me like it's $73.47. Do you think that's okay? They say, no, 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 you really have to count. And when there's lots and lots of things that influence a decision one way or another, you really have to count. It does seem, though, that there are certain decisions that people make with different time horizons. And if you're making a decision in a sub-second time horizon, probably gut is the overarching thing on making that decision. That could be if you're a video game player, if you're playing basketball or something, and you have to make these very, very, very quick decisions. If you're very witty and you're making this like super quick joke or something, there's probably a gut reaction there. Whereas if you're making decisions that take many weeks to make or something, if you have more time to make that decision, which is probably true in your life, probably my guess is your academics, you probably have the opportunity to have a longer time to make decisions than other people, then maybe your gut is less valuable in those types of decisions. No, that's certainly true. And it enters into the concept called bounded rationality. Namely, your rationality has to take into account its own limitations in terms of how much data you need, how much time it takes to make a decision, and often the optimal way of coming to a decision if you had all the time and all the data in the world is not particularly rational if you have to make decisions in a fixed period of time with a limited amount of data. Herbert Simon is the man who pointed that out. Uh, this has been great. Thank you, Stephen Pinker, for joining us on World of Das. It's been great. I follow you at S.A. Pinker on Twitter. I definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Oren. It has been good fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com. And by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of Das. Check it out at flexcapital.com.